This is the Statman Sports Podcast, where we keep topics in context. This is your host, Steve Duffus, who is still wondering why the Seahawks didn't run the ball. Ah, it's a beautiful day to talk sports, baby. Welcome to episode number 75 of the Statman Sports Podcast. This is your host, Steve Duffus. We're back once again for another episode, man. I just want to thank everyone that is here for the first time. We appreciate you coming in, listening to your friends to come into this podcast. And of course, me, I appreciate you uh, spending a little time just listening to my opinions about various uh, sports topics. For those of you who've been there since day one, you already know what the deal is, man. I appreciate you too. Um, I love you guys, man. You know what it is. Ah, Today, 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 of course, we're going to keep covering what we express we are going to do since two weeks ago which is the last dance uh episodes that you know we we we're gonna watch them together that's the one thing we all of us are looking forward to right now is uh sundays at 9 p.m sponsored by espn and netflix uh we watch uh, the last dance documentary about mostly about michael jordan that 98 chicago bulls team so uh today's episode of course we're gonna cover and review uh, episode five and six we already covered one through four so five and six was the one we watched last week and um of course uh if you have missed it on the live stream on mondays and tuesdays um i take the time and i talk about you know my the, the points that i thought were very interesting after watching the the episodes for that particular week so this week in episode five and six the big focus was on uh, mj and uh his off courts shenanigans of course with a, with a compilation of you know moving forward in the 98 season of course uh, they talked about the 93 championship um winning that three-peat you know how michael dealt with it and it talked into his retirement and um for those of you who haven't watched it yet i would encourage you strongly to go watch this and if you haven't i would suggest that you pause this podcast at the moment because there will be a lot of spoilers but uh, for those of you who are ready to, to hear my take on the first, uh, not the first, but rather episode five and six, here we go, man. So with no further ado, let's just get right into it. If you guys remember during episode one and two, uh, this was episode 73 of, uh, of the podcast, um, I, I did mention that I like a good story. And what's more intriguing about this documentary thus far it's how we visit the timelines. I think the producers did an amazing job in going, you know, to history, you know, tying it to uh, the present and allowing the older versions of each person to talk about what they were thinking at the time. And of course, there are going to be those situations where uh, those of us who lived through that time, we remember things in a particular way. But then when it was explained and elaborated and broken down in a documentary we got a different perspective and that's what makes this episode five and six of the, you know and when i meant this i meant this past week's episodes is how i personally perceived the michael jordan off-court issues um and just like we've been doing the past couple weeks you know we break down the interesting points to me that stood out the most so the number one thing you know just to just to start on a good note was the fact that you know i always thought michael jordan make a conscious decision to sign with nike but during this documentary we come to find out all of us i think most of us were surprised at the fact that the brains behind that operation was really michael jordan's mom 
you know, she made sure Michael Jordan listened to every offer that was thrown at him. Because as we saw in the documentary, he didn't want to t- talk to, to Nike at all. Because at the time, Nike was just a uh, running company. Um, they, they, all they did was, you know, tr- track and field. You know, they had different technology for track and field. So it wasn't really a, a basketball type of company. They were more so like an upstart. They were the new guys on the block. So Michael Jordan was like, eh, I don't really want to be there. Because there was already Converse, Adidas, Reebok. Those guys were in the big names, you know. And Michael Jordan didn't really want to join them. And uh, what was what was also interesting during that time when these companies was trying to sign MJ to a shoe deal was me having this correlation with LeBron James. I remember when LeBron James came to the NBA at a young age. Nike offered him $110 million signing bonus to sign a contract and people lost their minds. Because everyone was like, why would you pay a guy that hasn't performed <laughs> yet on an NBA court $110 million? And $110 million in 2000. What was it? 2003 was a lot of money. Thousand, um, I'm sorry, not 2003. 2006 was a lot of money. So it was like, yeah, I mean, it was it 2000? No, 2003. I'm sorry. That's that's a heck of a lot, a lot of money to pay a 17 year old kid. So that correlation was the same with uh, with uh, Michael Jordan at the time. You know, the big guys, as one of the agents was explaining, he, they used to make 110 thousand dollars. That's just a bonus you would get. For signing a shoe deal and nike was going to offer michael two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and everyone was like what <laughs> that's what you're gonna pay him so nike wanted to sell three million pairs of air jordans and that's another thing that was like, interesting to me because was like you know michael glides through the air you want to fly so why not call it air jordan so that's how the name came about it was very simplistically explained but i i loved it so, uh, as I was saying, Nike wanted to sell 3 million pairs of Jordans and they end up selling 126 million. So, in essence, Michael Jordan, that's the second point I want to get into. Michael Jordan pretty much made basketball not basketball anymore. By that I mean was we could go on a limb here and say that he practically you know started the fashion of incorporating basketball into everyday fashion because i don't think before people were just wearing basketball sneakers just to wear basketball sneakers to go to a party or to hang out whatever you wore basketball sneakers strictly to go on the basketball court and michael jordan made the shoe game fashionable hey i want to get me some pairs of jordans like justin timberlake talked about you know i did the same thing when i was younger i used to work at a supermarket you know you used to make three four dollars you know packing people's bags and taking them out you know used to work i used to do that a lot just for me to buy some pair of jordans and my time uh, and if you missed it in part of the documentary in the commercials the, the, the one of the spike lee commercials i think one of the other commercials i don't remember it uh i was i think it was a video clip when the guy stepped on the um uh, one of the guys uh, new brand new white Jordans he was like hey man I paid $108 plus tax for this <laughs> and all the only thing that crossed my mind at the time was man I wish Jordans now were $108 plus tax because back then when I bought them oh about 100 and how much were they my first pair that I bought for myself because the demand was so high it was like $150 this is $150 now like 93 94 like <laughs> that's how that's how much, you know, the Jordans was costing then. So you can imagine the phenom and 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 the, and the 
idea of you know paying a hundred dollars at that time for a pair of sneakers this is crazy but you know it was okay because it was michael jordan it was just okay and that brought a lot of intrigue and stood out to me during these two episodes right so and then after they talked about the sneakers um the big topic came up which to me if we break this down and and by the way this is the third point that really stood out to me was the fact that we have to think about we have to think about this for a moment michael jordan was a global icon he was practically bigger than the pope things i've tweeted about i've said this multiple times at the time jordan was just he was just bigger than everyone he was bigger than life almost and he could do no wrong and part of that was the fact that and for the younger generation if you're listening to this this is this also speaks into and i and i will get to my point that i wanted to make um but this also speaks to the 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 glorification of michael if you want to call it as to why people were enamored with michael at the time and even to this day like we don't have an allegiance when i say we because i i think again i i and i believe 90 percent of people think michael jordan is the greatest basketball player ever but don't get it twisted that he didn't go through scrutiny like players do today literally the only difference was that things were not accessible within minutes at the time when something happened it took maybe a day or two or three for you to find out you had to read a newspaper where the mouth had to go things need to be verified like things were different in the 90s it wasn't that easy as it is now now we're all pretty much journalists if you want to call it because we get the information quickly to our devices we see things in real time so the, we, the way we reacted things players are under a sharper microscope but it's not like they weren't sharp in the 90s mj went through his trials and tribulations with the media he went through some things and that speaks into my next point as to being an activist because as we saw during the doc there was this, this big race during the oj simpson trial between uh the black candidate um I don't remember his name at the moment. I should have looked up his name, but I don't. Um, I didn't take the time to look it up. Um, the black candidate running for office with the white candidate. The white candidate, um, and you know, people wanted Michael Jordan to, you know, support the black guy, because even as today, nothing didn't change from the nineties to now. When you are in a position, and especially as a black man or a black woman. And people look up to you when you're a position of power, you would say, or you have a position of stature like Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, you know, I'll name a few, Kobe Bryant, Usain Bolt, um, big celebrities. You can you can go down the list, you know, Gabriel Union now, Dwayne Wade, you know, you have Charles Barkley, you know, Kenny Smith. Even though they're on the basketball realm, there's more black, you know, comedians, actors, people in high, they have, they're regarded in high regard and we look up to them and sometimes when certain situations come up we tend to take their word differently than the i would say the common folk and we heard the famous the famous statement from michael jordan when he said republicans also wear sneakers and he made this comment now we got to give context to this i remember when he said that comment he was on a bus with his teammates, he's a Scottie Pippen, you know, Steve Kerr, Harris Grant. These guys were on the bus when he said that. So practically, MJ was saying like, "Look, man, my shoe, my shoe, my shoe is selling out everywhere. You know, making a bunch of money." So, in reference, Michael was just saying, "Look, man, 
it doesn't matter your skin color where you're from what your beliefs are what your political affiliations are hey just buy my sneakers that's all michael was referring to but the media just like it does and like i've always said and even i said this during my my uh, facebook and instagram live stream you don't escape father time and you don't escape the media and michael had to deal with that and this is going on during the trial where the prominent black man and on the documentary they refer to him as the liberal black man which to me i'm kind of like <laughs> i still feel some type of way about that but we'll get into that another time but remember now this is michael jordan this is two-time mvp michael jordan at the time you know two-time mvp michael jordan one all-star game mvp multiple times um he's a, he's a three-time cha- two-time champion at the time before this happened he's a two-time champion you know like the six-time scoring title champ or a five-time scoring title champ you know he's defensive player of the year like again he's a global icon so the black community is looking up to michael to say like hey man like are you going to take a side are you going to take a stand are you going to show support and during the documentary michael explained himself he was just saying listen <laughs> i'm all about my sneakers and basketball all i do i want to play basketball i don't care about activism pretty much that's what i could tell by michael's body language even at the time yeah i was so young at the time you could tell that michael did not want to involve himself in this type of thing he even said it during the documentary they asked his mother for comments about this and she was trying to get michael to speak out about it and michael was like no i don't want to i just want to give a donation practically move on with my life and in reality, that's what most celebrities want to do most of the time. They don't want to give a comment about every social thing that's going on. They want to give a comment about being an activist. They're sports icons. And at least in my statement that I put on Facebook and on Instagram as well. I mean, not Instagram, on Twitter and on Facebook. You cannot force someone to be an activist. And I know a lot of celebrities now, especially those who are very... Yeah, secure and voice their opinions on a daily they had a problem with michael not addressing even to this day 30 years later that situation you we we just can't force people to be activists but on the other side i'll say this though with much cow with much power come much responsibility me i'll give you i'll give you this example so you, it can even make more sense for some of you just listening my father happens to be a pastor and I've been and I've been held to a different regard my entire life. Regardless of how I live my life, people always looked at me different. I was judged differently. Certain things I just couldn't do. If somebody ate white bread and I ate brown bread, I was kind of judged for it. Oh, just because you're the pastor's kid. And a lot of people feel this way as well. Oh, because you're the son of the CEO, you should be able to do this or you shouldn't be able to do that. Or oh, your mom is the principle so you can't do this and you can't do that so most of you listening to this can relate to that and i felt like that that was that is what michael felt being the icon that he was he was on top of the sports world at the moment not just basketball just sports in general and him taking the side of not pushing a little more for said candidate as the documentary said he lost some clout in the black community and that was just part of the legacy of michael that to this day people are just holding him to a different regard like hey man you could have done better with that but that's what it is man but with much power come much responsibility and sometimes we do have to take one for the team but in this case michael didn't take one for the team he took one for his one team for himself so that that 
was a, a different perspective that I received um, from when the time when I lived it and now that Michael explaining it as to why he did what he did. And then we move on to the other point that was really quite and to me was the most interesting part was that it made me think of whether MJ really had a gambling problem or more like a competitive problem. And hear me out. Hear me out. Some of you might be thinking like, what do you mean? Like you, you just have a gambling problem. It just means you just gamble and gamble and gamble and you just lose your money. If you have a, if he had a gambling problem, well now after looking at this documentary, it made me think, especially these last two episodes, I'm saying, wait a minute. If you saw from episode one, obviously, which I assume, and if you haven't, later on, you have it on the ESPN Plus archives and 30 for 30 archives, you'll be able to see this. And those of you who live outside the US who listen to this podcast, you can watch this on Netflix on a weekly. If you get it, if you have time before Sunday, go watch the episodes or at least watch highlights of these episodes. And you see how competitive Michael Jordan is. Even during this two episodes, he was competing with the security guards. Shout out to the blonde hair guy. I don't remember his name either. <laughs> but, you know, they're over there flipping coins inside of Michael Jordan slash office slash locker room. You know, just flipping a coin, you know, betting $20, you know, on the on the, on the the plane you would see him, you know, flashing $100 bills that he won because he, he, guess what? He wanted to take your money, your mama's money, everybody else's money just for him to say that he won. That was Michael's problem. And I think that's what's translated into him going gambling. Because it was all about, I need to win. I want to win at any cost. To his demise. That was Michael's issue, I believe. I think he had more of a competitive problem rather than a, just a gambling problem. Because think about it. There's a lot of people out there in this world today that gamble. They do have a gambling problem. But a lot of them are not competitive gambling gambling is not about being competitive really if you think about it gambling is just taking a chance hey i want to i want to bet ten dollars to win a thousand dollars so if you win or lose doesn't really matter you're going to try it again and again and again that's how something becomes an addiction i'm not a therapist and i'm not a psychologist i don't so for those of you who want to correct me if you're listening to this you can leave those things in the comment let me know but you you can't necessarily I don't think the two things go together. You can't necessarily because you are competitive means you become a gambler or because you're a gambler, therefore you're competitive. No, I think gambling is just, hey, I just want to win $10. I, I bet $10. I want to win 100. So when you happen to win 100, you say, you know what? Let me try this again. So this time you're going to bet 15 and this time you lose 15. Then you say, you know what? I still have $85 left. So let me just bet another 20 and see if I can win again and again and again and again. But even though you keep losing and losing and losing, you keep going. Again, I don't want to drag out this point, but what I'm trying to say is um, Michael Jordan, I believe, had a 60-40 problem. A competitive problem that turned into him letting out the stress on gambling. In the 1993 playoffs against the New York Knicks, New York is the big city. I live close to New York, so I know how it is. <laughs> Michael Jordan had a busy life. People wanted a piece of him everywhere. Including his kids, his wife, his mom, his dad, everybody, the media, players, everybody was after Michael. So during this during this playoff run, which is the other fascinating part to my point that I'm trying to bring up here. The other fascinating point to me is that 
Michael's off-court things we didn't necessarily know about until people start writing about it that they mentioned about in the Jordan Rules book. Is it is it an investigative book where it talks about hey what is Michael like off the court? Because people wanted to know about Michael. We all we knew about Michael was on the basketball court. Again, we didn't have access like we do now, so it was very hard for us to understand like hey what is Michael like off the court? We saw him on the Oprah Winfrey show. We would see him on David Leverman show. We see him on different places, but we didn't necessarily know who he really was. We don't see his life like we do players today. So that Jordan Rules book set a light on Michael that was kind of casting a shadow over him. Like, wow, was Michael really like this? Is he really like this? Is he playing a role that he's really not in? Like, is that Michael in real life? So it started to put a lot of doubt on us. And of course, when the scandal came out of, and we saw during the documentary, the fifty thousand dollar check that he wrote to shout out to your boy Slim with the Jerry curl. <laughs> Yo, Michael's Michael's funny, man. How you you gamble with somebody so classic, slim with a Jericho. The dude probably owed a bunch of people money, so he was you know trying to pull one on Michael, like, bro, you owe me fifty thousand. And Michael wrote him a fifty thousand dollar check, and then we, we, like I talked about, he went through the playoff series and the '93 series against the Knicks, them being down 0-2. I think the series was tied 2-2, whatever it was at the moment. Michael said, you know what? I just want to clear my head from all this going on, and I just want to go to Atlantic City with his dad. In the documentary, old Michael is saying, listen, I'm not old Michael. Well, Michael is old now. I'm saying present Michael was saying, listen, I just want to clear my mind. I went with my dad. I didn't get home that late. 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. But that also, if you think about the other end of that, it also speaks about Michael Jordan's greatness. You went all the way to Atlantic City. Those of us that live in the tri-state area, you know how far Atlantic City is from New York City? Where I live from where I live to Atlantic City is about two hours, three hours almost to get there. <laughs> so Michael went from New York and I live an hour and a half away from New York. So just imagine what Michael had to do to go from Atlanta to from New York to Atlantic City. Okay, so like and I live in the middle of both places. So just think about that. He went that far to get away from this. From the medium from everybody clear his head. And then he comes back, then on probably what three, four hours of sleep, goes through practice, and then to come in a game and then drops forty points on the Knicks. And then in game four, the same thing, you know, the Knicks went up two zero in the series, and then Jordan and the Chicago Bulls just drop him at home in game three and game four. Jordan dropped fifty four points, goes nineteen for thirty, shoots fifty four percent, and God knows what he was doing all those other nights. So that that speaks into more the aura of what Michael Jordan's like, and that's what I want the younger generation now to understand. Like when people are saying these older guys, they're not lying when they're saying that Michael Jordan could be doing the things he was doing then now. Because back then he doesn't. Back then the players didn't have the 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 equipment. They didn't have the knowledge that the players have now. Players are better, stronger, faster now. And when I mean better, I mean better in terms of the getting better at the game of basketball they have they have more tools at their disposal now michael had didn't have all the tools to his disposal he just had a bunch of money and with that money he was able to gather and become who he was by getting their proper training the proper diet getting himself in the situation he spent a lot of money on himself just like lebron does now just to be in the top tip shape that he was and to compete at the level he did and you add that to the competitiveness that he had that's what he was doing in an era where scoring wasn't that scoring was pretty much at a premium at the time 
teams were averaging like 96 a game and Jordan was averaging 30. So just think about his relative, man. It's, it's just crazy how to 96 points I average, one guy's averaging 30. So he's averaging pretty much one-third of the scoring of the league on one team by himself. And that leads to the other point I want to talk about later, which is wouldn't Michael Jordan average 40 in this era now? Remember, he played an era where pretty much you play through stuff. You play through, you know, burns and cuts and referees who see you bleeding on the court to be like, yo, just get up, bro. Keep playing. That's the type of era MJ played in. He had to deal with a lot of physicality. Like, people, defenders would get away with a lot of things. People would get away with crazy stuff that you wouldn't even think about today. And, and that's what Michael had to deal with. So, when we, when we go through the documentary, we see how Michael, especially these two last two episodes, how we see how Michael progressed through life off the basketball court and then have to deal with all that off the court and then have to come on the court and we expect him to still perform speaks into his greatness. And it's mind-blowing how he had to deal with all that and he was never under, he never felt like any type of pressure. Like he performed at the level that we just haven't seen since. And that speaks to his greatness. And that's why people have a hard time saying that anyone is better than him. Because you can speak about all the numbers. You guys know I'm all about the numbers myself. But you can talk about everything. And even the numbers suggest that he's just the greatest basketball player to ever live. And that leads me to my last point here. Michael Jordan could average 40 in every era. Could. That's not up for question. Or for debate. And I don't think... This one's either for debate, either. It's up for debate, either. Wouldn't he average 40 now? The NBA has changed the rules now to allow players to score more. Allow t just They just allow the pace of the game to be faster. You shoot more three-pointers. The three-point three line is more... You know, like I said, players are better. The three-point line is where it's at. You know, the NBA moved it forward and moved it back a couple years. Um... Most players not can shoot three-pointers. Big men can shoot three-pointers. We've come from an era where when Avrida Sabonis, if you remember who Avrida Sabonis is, the great Portland Trailblazer center who used to compete against Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant's Lakers early in the 2000s. When this man used to shoot three-pointers, we all used to lose our mind like, bro, there's a seven-footer shooting threes. Now it's a common thing. Look at KD. You know, Joel Embiid. You know, Al Horford. You know, just, just name them all. Just go down the list. Just a bunch of seven-footers, six-nine, six-eight guys just shooting the basketball from anywhere on the court that's the era we live in now but what we are forgetting is that these players can score in the bunches that they can because the pace is just faster they shoot better threes yes but also the way the game is construct constructed the systems that the players are playing it is tailored to the superstars now just imagine even if i teleport michael jordan prime michael jordan with the skills he had then, into the NBA now. Look what he had to play with at the time. Michael used to get to the line because he was relentless. Michael used to get to the line because that's just the play style he had. He was the type of guy that was just about getting to the basket, creating contact, getting fouled. Players in the 80s and the 90s, that's what they live for. They play through contact. They live for those moments. They allow themselves, they force the referee's hand. They wanted to dish out punishment to defenders. Now, players just 
to put it simplistically, they either settle for three pointers or they just go for layup or alley oops. Like nobody wants to play with contact. It's not because the referees don't want to call it. And I even had this argument on Facebook. The referees weren't not because it was the eighties and the nineties is why referees were calling more fouls. That's not it. Players at the time were forcing referees to call fouls because of how they played the game of basketball. Take it to the basket. Put stress on your defense. Now it's quote-unquote easier to defend players because players are settling for shots. Michael Jordan either took the ball to the basket or he was living in the mid-range. I even posted graphics to prove my point. 1988 season, Michael Jordan, to me, one of the greatest, if not top the greatest seasons of all time. Michael Jordan won MVP, All-Star Game MVP, Defensive Player of the Year. Listen to this, <laughs> okay? All-Star Game MVP, uh, All-Star Game MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, uh, MVP, Scoring Title, Steals Title, Shot 54%. He only averaged 0.63 point attempts for the entire season and averaged 37 points. And he only averaged seven free throw attempts a game. That's 1988. So you mean to tell me, leave the players as they are now. Are you guys telling me or anybody wants to argue the fact that if Michael Jordan played now in this basketball era where you can barely breathe on a player, especially superstars, that he couldn't and uh, he wouldn't average 40 points? Look, man, before this whole coronavirus breakout, James Harden was averaging 14 and a half free throw attempts a game. And he was averaging near 39 points a game. And James Harden settles a lot for three-pointers. He either settles, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily take mid-range shots. Michael Jordan is the king of mid-range. He put his stress on your defense. He will force your defense to guard him. And then on top of that, he had the best footwork of all time. Aside from Hakeem Olajuwon, in my opinion. And Kobe Bryant. So how wouldn't he average 40 points a game? And of course, you know, to wrap it all up, it's quite interesting now how we really find out. It wasn't because of Michael's passing of his father as to why he quit basketball. It was just the stress of it all. Simple as that. It was just the stress of it all. And it's quite interesting how it came out from his mouth. Like we all thought Michael was just done with the media. He was done with people. He was just done. He's like, look, I'm mentally dealing with too much. My dad passed away. Uh... The media, the, you know, the the, the, the off-court issues. So it, it was amazing because at the time, we all thought that, you know, Michael's passing is what caused him to retire in 1993. But, you know, Michael speaking at the end of episode 6, we just saw what the, the deal was really about. And I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen in episode 6 and 7. How he's going to broaden on the fact that, man, this is, this is a... Uh, this is the reason why I went to baseball. So we're really going to find out about this. So I'm quite interesting and I'm interested rather. And, I'm, and I can't wait for us to hear about this. Ah, we've come to the end of another episode. That was episode number 75 of the Statman Sports Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. And I appreciate you if you're still listening. Um, I appreciate you, you know, taking the time listening to my review of The Last Dance. And of course... Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you've been there since day one, I appreciate you. You know, just tuning in every week and listening to, you know, us breaking down sports 
the way i love to do it so before i let you guys go you already know the deal is man next week you know we're gonna continue reviewing the last dance this is gonna be episode uh seven and eight uh we just have two more weeks of this left man so let's appreciate it and um if you haven't signed up for espn plus you already know you can follow the link on our website uh, you can go to statmanpodcast.com sign up for your espn plus uh package and uh, you can enjoy that as well during the quarantine if you want to buy statman uh merchandise you can always go to store.startmanpodcast.com this is all the information we have for you this week and I, again i hope you guys enjoyed the episode and i will see you next week but for right now statman signing out baby thanks for listening to the statman sports podcast see you next time